Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2013 AWP conference in Boston. The recording features Edith Perlman, Andre Debuz III, and Mary Kay Zorobolev. You will now hear Elise Blackwell and Emma Snyder provide introductions. Good afternoon. It's lovely to see so many of you out this afternoon. My name is Elise Blackwell. I'm on the board of directors of the AWP, uh, which gives me a lot of glamorous opportunities to ask people to please turn their cell phones off and to remind you to vote in the AWP election between now and April 15th, which you can do online. One other announcement, the authors have very kindly offered to sign books right outside the auditorium after the event. I would ask you to please wait to approach them until they can get to the book signing tables. Welcome to Andre Debuse III and Edith Perlman, a reading and conversation. We'd like to thank Penn Faulkner for this literary partnership and for sponsoring the conference. I also um, direct an MFA program, and I have 18 students here, and one of the reasons they can be here is because of the $40 conference registration rate that sponsors make possible. So thanks especially to Penn Faulkner and for organizing this event for us today. I'd like to now introduce Emma Snyder, Executive Director of Penn Faulkner. Thank you. Well, Penn Faulkner thanks AWP as well, and Elise and Christian, and everybody who's uh, helping us put on this event today. Um, my name is Emma Snyder. I'm the executive director of Penn Faulkner. And we are so pleased uh, to have you all here at Penn Faulkner's reading as a literary partner of AWP. Um, uh, several times in the past few days, people have come up to our booth, booth 511, although that's less relevant now, um, and asked us, who is Penn Faulkner? What exactly do you do? Because we're an organization that is known primarily for the Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction, an extraordinary fiction prize given every year to the best work of American fiction in the previous calendar year. Um, and so you may have heard our name a little bit this week because we announced the five finalists to the 2013 Penn Faulkner Award prize just last Wednesday. Um, but Penn Faulkner actually has a life beyond the award, and that's something that is often not known about quite so much. Specifically, the mission of the organization um, that the award exemplifies in a national sense is to bring readers and writers together um, and to foster a, a devoted sense of literary community, to create opportunities for conversation, and that those conversations will lead to uh, a cultivation of, a promotion of, and a real appreciation of the most exceptional American literature that we produce here and today. And so it seemed absolutely appropriate um, to present this event today, specifically here in the waning hours of AWP 2013, on the day that we invite the public in to uh, take part in all of our events, um, and specifically to feature two local writers, extraordinary voices who speak to the experiences of this region, to these people uh, who know each other, who know this place, um, these streets, and who can speak and talk about uh, their different experiences and different ways of interpreting um, this place, this community that we have come to for the last few days and, and been appreciating. 
they will be more personally introduced by someone else who, to me, represents the best of literary community and literary culture, Mary Kay Zorovlev, who sits to my left. Um, Mary Kay is the author of two novels, The Bowl is Already Broken and The Frequency of Souls, and has a new novel, Man Alive, coming from FSG this fall, so keep an eye out for that. She has received the American Academy's Rosenthal Award, the James Jones First Novel Award, and been nominated for the Orange Prize. But even more, Mary Kay is someone who manages to ride that line between a sparkling wit and an extraordinary empathetic insight into human beings, both as a writer and as a person. Um, and I've come to know this because she is a board member of the Penn Faulkner Foundation. We reside in Washington, D.C., and so the way that our mission is embodied outside of the prize is through a reading series and through a Writers in Schools program, which are both very important to D.C. as its own specific literary community. And Mary Kay is an exemplar in that community of who writers can be for each other and who they can be for their readers. Someone who curates the Penn Faulkner reading series at the Folger Theater, bringing in writers from all over the country. Someone who goes into the DC schools and speaks with students and creating that next generation of readers. And someone who is deeply supportive of her fellow writers in DC, creating events for them. She's an extraordinary person. As I said, she has a sparkling wit and there are a few people who would be better to lead this conversation today. So, Mary Kay Zorofliff. Thank you, Emma. Now I feel like this is my event. It's an incredible honor to be on stage with Edith Perlman and Andre Debuse III. And I really thank all of you for joining us in this intimate setting. This is like being live from Yankee Stadium here. The Penn Faulkner Foundation's mission, as Emma told you, is extremely straightforward, to bring readers and writers together. So even before we start, mission accomplished, right? All right, so the setup this afternoon is that I will introduce the two writers, and I will ask them each a few questions, and then I will ask them to read during our session. So the hope is that this will unfold organically, and we'll get to have a conversation as we do this. So allow me to start by introducing Edith Perlman. Edith was born in Providence, Rhode Island. She graduated about five miles from here at Radcliffe, and for 10 years after college, she worked as a computer programmer outside Boston. For decades, she has lived about five miles from here in Brookline. So for those of you who wonder where she's been all your life, the answer is right here. Indeed, she has been called the Bard of Brookline. <laughs> and she sets many of her stories in a Boston suburb she calls Godolphin. Yesterday, during the wonderful tribute to her, Roselle and Brown called that town semi-fictional, which I thought was a, a whole new genre for us. Edith describes Godolphin in one story as not so much out of fashion as beyond its reach. When I was on the committee that chose Edith Perlman for the 2011 Penn Malamud Award, we thought we had discovered her. Previously, Ann Patchett thought she had discovered her, and there were many before who claimed the same. In fact, Edith Perlman has been steadily publishing her acclaimed short stories and nonfiction since the 1970s. She has won the Pushcart Prize twice, the O. Henry Award three times, and has been included in Best American Short Stories four times. And that doesn't even count her books or her nonfiction and travel writing. So why do we each feel 
an accomplice to her success. I have a theory about this. And my theory is that Edith Perlman's stories allow us to discover her. Her fiction is like the most interesting person at a party, rather than the frenetic center of attention. And her wry, restrained narrative voice is fantastic company. The reader is her confidant, and so we feel singularly in on whatever story she is telling. Or not telling, as in the case of the story, where the suspense comes from a husband waiting for the moment his wife will tell the story he's heard throughout their married life. In Jan term, the high school narrator coins the word non-inquisitiveness and explains non-inquisitiveness, along with just plain being there, beats all the good intentions of friends and neighbors, even the ones who left casseroles on the back porch. Edith is masterful at being there. With empathy, intelligence, and wit, she tells stories of people becoming their best selves, even in tales of suicide, theft, or a mercy killing. We feel she is listening to her characters rather than speaking for them, and she makes alliances, or as she calls it, accommodations, rather than disdaining or destroying. Her short stories have been gathered into four celebrated collections. How to Fall won the Mary McCarthy Prize, Love Among the Greats garnered the Spokane Prize, and Vaquita received the Drew Hines Prize. In addition to the Penn Malamud Award, her latest binocular vision won the National Book Critics Circles Award in 2012 and was a finalist for the National Book Award. Edith Perlman. So Edith, my first question stems from a personal devotion to math and science. Can you talk about the crossover for you between computer programming and writing? For 10 years after college, I was a computer programmer. I went to college a couple hundred years ago, and <laughs> computers then were about the size of this room. They were nothing like the little thing that sits on your desk. And you had to uh, become intimate with the computer in order to make it work. And you had to follow a syntax and a grammar. And if you got the sentence wrong, so to speak, these were not, not sentences, but they were numbers in a syntactical order. If you got them wrong, you made a mistake. And the computer didn't work. But mistakes were not forever. You could always turn to your desk and get things right. I think that is the similarity between programming as it was then and writing as it always has been, that you try to get things right with order and with reorder and with throwing out, uh, but, your, but your purpose is to get things right um, in, a, in an orderly fashion and um, solve, a, solve a problem. So that is what I see as the, the connection. That's wonderful. I want to have a long talk with you about syntax sometimes. Andre, it was a pleasure to read the nonfiction behind some of your fiction. And for example, your Persian girlfriend that you talked about in Townies, or your work as a carpenter in your boxing. So I was wondering if you could talk about your life as material. Oh, Lord. First, I want to say it's an honor to share the stage with Edith Perlman. 
You know, I really think if Alice Monroe and Anton Chekhov had a child. <laughs> um, am I right? The truth is, I really don't know the answer. What was your question? My question was, how does your life, how do the jobs you've had and the people you've known that you talked about in your memoir, how do you use that in your fiction? Uh, uh, totally unconsciously, the way I think probably a lot of uh, writers do. It, you know, um, I love this line uh, from Richard Bausch. He said, if you think that you're thinking, think again. He says, if you think that you're thinking when you're writing, think again. That you're much closer to the dreaming side of your mind. And so, you know, I find that you know, this descent into the dream world always surprises me. If it's going well, it surprises me. And, um, you know, writing Townie uh, kind of educated me to some of the things that haunt me. And I think that, uh, you know, a lot of my life experience showed up. And uh, I discovered writing Townie that a lot of what was in the novels made sense. There was a lot of physical violence, a lot of uh, drinking, a lot of, um, a lot of breaking of boundaries. And I remember I was surprised the first reviews of, of my first book that came out in 1989 uh, said his characters are vulnerable to drink, violence, and sexual desire. And I thought, oh, well, there's me. <laughs> so, but you were I, surprised that there was you. I was surprised. I, was su I, I did not know then that there's no way you can write honestly and openly and fall into your dream world and not get completely naked on the page. And it takes nerve. Yeah, it it obviously takes a lot of talent to, to, to be able to do that. And um, I, so, I was telling him earlier, I so enjoyed Townies. Um, my next question is about these intergenerational relationships that both of you have written about. Um, Edith, the first line of your story, girl in blue with brown bag, is, they had many things in common, the man of 67 and the girl of 17. And in fact, those juxtapositions, those friendships and alliances are a theme that you return to. And Andre, especially in your memoir, you write about you and your friends hanging out with your father and his friends. And I wondered if you guys could talk about the appeal of these relationships. Après vous. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I think that all relationships are interesting, and everybody brings to a relationship something different from the other person. When they are of different ages, there is just that much more richness. The older person, whatever sex, uh, brings a, a, a history that is longer than the younger person. The younger person brings a kind of uh, winsomeness or hope that the older person may have lost. But I think the other thing that is uh, probably attractive about uh, uh, intergenerational relationships is that they recapitulate the primal relationship of a mother and a child. What she said. <laughs> no, you know, I, I, I have to say to the Mary Kay, I'm, I'm not aware of, of consciously putting one generation with another, although strangely the, the story I'm going to read from today is actually told from the point of view of a an 18-year-old young woman and the 81-year-old great-uncle with whom she lives. Imagine that. Yeah, so maybe you're onto something there, honey. <laughs> but I do find, especially with the novel form, that um, I really like reaching for ingredients which feel disparate, um, that feel as if they might not go together. And I'm thinking about my novel, House Sand and Fog. I, I had this Iranian colonel and this working-class uh, woman from Saugus, Mass. And, 
and it felt like sperm and egg. And, and sometimes, you know, an old man and a young woman feel like sperm and egg. I don't mean that literally. Um, one cultural and one culture and another, again, feels like sperm and egg. I really like taking these ingredients that feel like they may not ever match and see if they actually come together. And when they do, it really feels like something mm -hmm. might be happening. Mm -hmm. Well, this would be a good time for me to give my introduction of Andre. Andre grew up within an hour from here. He is the son of an accomplished writer who lived on a college campus, publishing prized fiction and teaching talented students. And yet, as he masterfully describes in his memoir, Townie, this Andre lived in a rough part of a mill town on the Merrimack River. He and his three siblings essentially raised themselves, their single mom commuting and working to put not enough food in the refrigerator. The treehouse they nailed together was built of stolen lumber and became a haven for after-school drinking and drugs. His father was a loving part of his life, but not a witness to their daily scrapes and struggles. One afternoon, his dad invites him over for burgers and throws a baseball to him, which is a completely novel activity for the 14-year-old Andre. And the description in his book is, soft arcing tosses that were fun to catch. Fun. What I remember most is being surprised that my father was surprised. What did he think kids did in my neighborhood? The young Andre grows fit in order to fight. He is determined to defend himself, his family, and the defenseless. Writers are often the observers on the edge. However, when Andre describes sitting in a bar with his back to the wall, he's studying the crowd and watching the door for danger. Will this be the night someone comes in to settle an old score, or will he have to take on a bully? Fortunately for us, Andre Debus began writing, not to settle scores, but to represent, to fight the good fight. He discovered maybe there were other ways to express a wound, and that rather than fight, quote, I had to become these other people, unquote, that writing required me to suffer with someone else. The work he'd done and continued to do as a carpenter, bartender, and in halfway houses showed up in his compassionate collection, The Cage Keeper and Other Stories, and the novels, Bluesman, The Garden of Last Days, and House of Sand and Fog, which was a bestseller, an Oprah Book Club selection, a National Book Award finalist, and was made into an Oscar-nominated film. His memoir, Townie, was a New York Times bestseller and on many top 10 lists of 2011. He has been awarded a Pushcart Prize, the National Magazine Award for Fiction, and a Guggenheim Fellowship. He has taught at Harvard and Tufts, and he is currently at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. His new book, Dirty Love, will be out this fall. Andre Debus. Thank you. Thank you. So I'll aim a question your way. Andre, your characters tend to reveal something they're not proud of. And Edith, you have the restraint of William Trevor, but a little more warmth, I would say, in my opinion. How do you two balance that revealing from withholding information? <laughs> oh, all right. These are such smart questions, they're scaring the shit out of me. Um, no, the reason, no, I'm being sincere, they're, they're challenging really great questions. And so your question is, how do you, how do you balance the revealing and the restraint? And, the, and my honest answer is only in the, in the revision. That in the first drafts, I try not to restrain one molecule. I try to get as naked with these people as possible and have them get as naked with me and have an orgy of discovery for as long as it takes, and then I put the clothes back on and start to shut the doors and restrain. 
Um, that's my answer. Well, my answer is quite similar. I write uh, probably three times as much as you will ever see. Michelangelo said that uh, the way to do, the way to make a statue is to get a slab of marble and take away everything that isn't the statue. And that is kind of the way I write a story. I, uh, there is a slab on my desk of words, 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 words. And writing, as Andre says, is revision, really, and revision and revision. And slowly, I take away the things that are not absolutely necessary until what's left is uh, not taken away, not take awayable. Um, and I think that is what seems restraint, although as I describe it, it sounds really quite wild. Yeah, yeah. And do you find too, Edith, that you need, you need that period of giving yourself permission to go as, as far down those channels of discovery as possible um, in order to then find out what's necessary? You, have to, you know, I was talking about this today with my, my new friend, Joe, here. And um, uh, I, I have this theory that when, when you hear these writers always say, oh, you have to give yourself permission to write shitty drafts. Oh, yeah, bull. Or you have to give yourself permission to write badly. I don't think it means, go ahead, write 15 cliches in a row in a really forced wooden scene of dialogue. We can't bear to look at that. I don't think it means that. I think it means you have to give yourself permission to write drafts that you know have no dramatic tension, that you know are uh, sloppy and, and not tight, but you need to, to bear that not loving that draft so you can find what then is necessary and essential, which you will shave down and leave for the reader. It's, it's how you get to know your characters mm. by writing much too much about them. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. This would be a wonderful time for you to read to us. Okay. Woo! Oh, I forgot my water. Would you bring your water with you? I'm going to read a story from uh, the book Binocular Vision. The story is called Lineage. The chief character in Lineage is a very old woman lying in a hospital bed being interviewed by three doctors. Her English is perfect, but her cradle language was Russian, which she slips into more and more frequently as the story goes on. In print, Russian is conveyed by italicized English. In the reading, I'll let you know when she uh, when she starts to speak Russian by mentioning it, and maybe with a slight change in my voice. Lineage. Good morning, Mrs. Lubin. Silence. Professor Lubin the doctor corrected, consulting his clipboard. Silence. How are you feeling? Contemptuous silence. <laughs> Do you know why you are here? Strenuous silence. <laughs> you have suffered a neurological event, a transient ischemic attack. Stroke, she said at last, 
She was lying on a hospital bed whose aluminum sidebars were half-raised. An unused IV pole stood in a corner of the room. The second bed was unoccupied. A fuzzy Cezanne print hung on the mustard wall. Stroke? Well, not yet. We hope not at all. I'm pleased that your voice is so strong. I am Mortimer Lilibeck, and this is Dr. Natalie White, and this is Dr. Eric Hauser. Dr. Hauser will ask you a few questions. Silence. Dr. Hauser cleared his throat. What month are we in? Her eyes strayed to the window, to the snowy Chicago sky. They returned to Dr. Hauser with a glare. Who is the president? The glare intensified. What is your age? Where were you? 92, she said. It should be on your records. I was born in 1914 in Brooklyn. Young Dr. Hauser produced a grimace, probably meant to be heartening. It might have earned him the firing squad years ago, far away. <laughs> My father was born in Russia, she said, more slowly. He was the, he was, he was the, and the voice, suddenly aged, quavering, slipped into a different language, Russian now. There it regained its strength and, oddly, its youth. He was the czar, little father. She continued now to speak in this other tongue. He dressed simply and bathed in cold water. He carried a metal pocket case containing a portrait of his wife, the Empress Alexandra. He loved the forceful Empress. My mother was not forceful. He did not love my mother. You don't wish to hear this history, you indifferent Americans, but there will soon be another ischemic attack. Ischemic attack? Dr. Hauser, with a second ghastly smile, seized the familiar English words. Her words, though, returned to Russian. And so I wish to tell. I am not the last of the Romanovs. There are collateral descendants here and there. One operates a cleaning establishment. And I am not even a legitimate Romanov. And I am not even legitimate. But I am the sole surviving offspring of Nicholas II and Vera Derevenko. I could, if I were so inclined, claim the treasure supposedly residing in a French bank. I could claim the crown now under glass in Moscow. I could claim all those eggs Fabergé made for my family. My mother, Vera Derevenko, was the daughter of a doctor in the royal household. She had trained as a nurse. She and Nicholas copulated in the woods surrounding Nicholas's favorite residence, Tsarskoye Shogo, in June 1913, when the world was at peace. And then Vera went back to her St. Petersburg hospital and discovered she was pregnant. She fled to America. There I was born. 
My father knew nothing of me. He was the czar. Professor Lubin, it would help if you spoke English, said Dr. Lilybeck. Whom would it help, she said in English. <laughs> Us. She made a weary gesture back to Russian. The Empress Alexandra and the children, my half-siblings, destined to die in a basement, were away at the time, on holiday, in the Crimea. The doctors and tutors, too. Rasputin was drinking and fornicating in another province. Nicholas, head of state, remained in Tarskoye Sheo to examine documents and sign them, to read letters and answer them. Ministers visited him continually. The Duma was a joke. My mother, too, had stayed behind to arrange some matters for her father, the doctor. The czar walked alone every day in the woods. She also. Theirs was not an assignation, but an accident. I happened by chance. Have you seen our land in the spring? I myself have not, nor in any other season, but my mother described it to me during her final illness 50 years ago. Mud, well, the mud is famous. A sweet confusion in the woods, young leaves furring the birches, immense red pines, willows. You can hear the new blackbirds. They will be shot. She aimed two fingers at Dr. White, who did not flinch, did not even lower her eyes. They will be shot in autumn. There was a ravine where crystal water bubbled. On a branch hung a funnel-shaped ladle made of birch. They drank the cold, fresh water. They walked along a winding path to an unused hunting lodge. They spoke of Dickens, of Durer, favorite topics of well-bred Russians. In the late afternoon sun, the air was full of amber droplets, and everything was as if bathed in warm tea. The trees, the wet lane, even the faces of the two people who had not yet touched each other. This is the Russian spring. Dr. Lilivek touched his balding head. There is a translator. She is not in the hospital today. My mother's eyes were hazel and her teeth were widely spaced. Her skin was freckled, her curly hair light brown. As a member of the household, she had seen that Nicholas was prodded and worried by the adored empress and the detested monk. She pitied the little father. She was not raped that afternoon. She, signorial right was not exercised. She collaborated in her own deflowering. His hands were gentle. His eyes were the brown of a thrush. And his beard, too. There was only a little pain. There was extreme sweetness. And then came an extraordinary moment. She looked up into his brown gaze and she saw his murder, the murder that would take place five years later. She saw eight corpses, man, 
wife, five children, serving maid, and a crushed spaniel dying. The corpses first shot were then chopped, drenched in acid, burned, and buried. These meager remains were identified later by the metal photograph case and the skeleton of the spaniel, whose body had been tossed into the grave. My mother saw other future things, disconnected images. She saw an open-eyed little girl, dead of typhus. Or was it starvation? Or was it the bayonet? One of the millions of the little father's children to die during the coming civil war. She saw Trotsky in his greatcoat. She saw Zinoviev the apparatchik getting out of a limousine whose seats were covered with bearskin. She saw members of the Cheka, blood dripping from their fangs. She saw Lenin, dead from stroke, or perhaps poison. When news of these happenings reached her ears in far-off Brooklyn, she merely nodded. Good doctors, there is a figure in Russian legend, a domesticated bear. I cannot remember the name given him, Call him transient ischemic. Transient ischemic, yes, said Dr. Hauser. <laughs> but she returned to Russian. The bear has the power to foresee the future, but not the language to reveal it. He can only gaze at his masters from the hearth. Sorrowfully, for the future is always grievous. So it was with my mother. She spoke little. She spoke less. She spoke hardly at all. She might have been an animal. In Brooklyn, despite her nurse's training, she worked as a lowly attendant in an institution for the feeble-minded. We lived with an impoverished female cousin. The few sentences my mother did say, she said in Russian. The translator will come tomorrow. Afterwards, they stood and straightened their clothing. He picked up the framed photograph of his wife, which had fallen out of his pocket. He raised my mother's fingers to his lips. Separately, they returned to the palace. She never saw him again. She would hear many times that he had been autocratic, weak, extravagant, indifferent to his subjects, deserving of the epithet bloody, she did not contradict. All this she told me in a spate of verbosity the night she died. Mrs. Lubin repeated the last two words in English, she died. Dr. Lilybeck said, you not, need not think of death. She closed her eyes, banishing him, banishing his two subordinates. She recalled and then chose not to recall her pinched girl, her department on Avenue J, and the two gloomy women who had raised her, her long and indifferent marriage, her unimportant contributions to topology, her only son, victim of cancer at 35, another dead Romanov. And she, 
propped up in a bed under three watchful pairs of eyes. Might she at this late hour be invested with that old bear's power to envision the future? Plagues, civil disruptions, babies born monstrous. Any wag could foretell those catastrophes. No. Her gift was to witness not what was to come, but what had been. She thought of the little father, Nicholas, abandoned before his death and disregarded afterwards. Remembered now only by a stroked out mathematician who had not known him, but could nevertheless see khaki garments, beard, kindly eyes, mouth smiling at the freckled nurse who on a warm afternoon had soothed his troubled spirit. A solitary incident, one moment of singular ease, its issue, one life of singular unremarkableness, hers. And with her passing would die not the memory of the incident, that memory had perished with Nicholas, with Vera, but the memory of its deathbed telling. But the reputation of the tragic czar, no further stain, she opened her eyes. The doctors were still there, writing on their clipboards, exchanging glances, as thorough as the Cheka. My mother was mad, she said hurriedly in English. Her story was merely an invention, she recanted, to console me from my shameful birth. The season is winter, Dr. Hauser. The president is a boob. <laughs> Dr. White touched her hand. Little mother, she said in the old woman's tongue, if a lie, a generous one. And if the truth, safe with you and me, rest now. A few minutes later in the hall, Natalie snapped Dr. Lilybeck your command of Russian, an unexpected talent. That patient's prattle, what was it? Mortimer, Dr. White said sweetly. A folktale, more or less. Thank you. Yeah. Beautiful. And if this were Yankee Stadium, the fireworks would go off <laughs> just now. That was beautiful. With a story like that, that brings me to the question of, I mean, the layering of that. How do you, how much do you have to go on when you begin? Is it, do you, does the writing take you there, this sort of divining rod, or are you aiming toward the well? Well, uh, in that story, I, uh, uh, I did imagine it um, somewhat uh, first, and then I made an outline, and then I uh, followed the outline, and then I tore up the outline, and then I <laughs> wrote some more. Well, Andre does it too. <laughs> That's the way we work. Can I ask you a story about the short story? You know, there's, a, there's a, that famous Faulkner line, he said, when the writer begins, 
he tries his hand at poetry. When he fails at that, he tries the short story. And when he can't do that either, he ends up writing novels, <laughs> which I write. And I do think he's on to something. You write I write short stories too, though. No, yeah, I do. But I do think that um, you know, a great poem, every word, every letter of every word has to be just right. A great story, every word has to be just right. But the novel is a much more forgiving form. We've all read great novels that could lose 200 pages, but they're still great. The Grapes of Wrath could really use, could lose 200 pages, but it's still a great novel. So it's a more forgiving form. So you, like my, my master short story father, Andrew Debuse, you work in a less forgiving form. Anyway, I was, I'm just so moved by this story. I, I, I think in this story you captured what, what many novelists would spend 400 pages trying to capture. <laughs> Seriously, 400 pages. And this, anyway, I just, I'm just taking my hat off to you, and I'm asking you, was it a conscious choice? I know in my father's case, it was a conscious choice that he was not going to write novels. He read Chekhov, and he said, that's it. From now on, I just want to try to write as well as Anton Chekhov. How about for you? I have never had a wish to write a novel, so uh, I have no conflict. <laughs> and that's that. <laughs> <laughs> I, can I ask a follow-up? What about when the publishers say, oh, I'm not anymore for you, but way back. At, oh, Ms. Perlman, we, we like your collection of stories, but do you have a novel? And if you have a novel, we might be able to give you a two-book contract. But I don't have a novel, sir. That's what I said. And so that was just the constant, yeah. Mm -hmm. Bravo! Yeah. Bravo! <laughs> Masterful writer and question answerer. <laughs> Well, let me ask you the same question. How much do you have to go on when you start? I, I really find that the, the less, the better. I, I found in my own writing struggles, the, the more I've known, the, the more I've killed it. And I've never actually outlined a novel, but, if, but if, I, if I see too far down the road, it's usually because, and I was talking about this with Joe today, I think it was, it's usually because I'm, I'm making it up more than I'm imagining it. And I think the best writing I've done, and I'm haunted by everything I've done, I'm not satisfied with anything. I think most writers you know, really go for that. Beckett line, ever tried, ever failed, never mind, try again, fail better. <laughs> it's so friggin' Irish, because it's encouraging and discouraging all at once. <laughs> but I, um, so for me, I mean, I, I, the less I have, the better. If I just have the sliver of a situation, and the sliver of a character doing an action, and I step into a genuine curiosity, not just a little curiosity, but total curiosity, then something happens. But I found that whenever I've been gripped with a story to tell, I've reduced it and made it a stale, dead thing. But when I've stepped into the writing, really gripped more with the story to find, something always comes. And it's usually not what you even want to friggin' write about. No, it isn't. Right? Right. And I think that's what Blaise Pascal meant when he said, anything written to please the author is worthless. Just because we want to write about this doesn't mean it wants to be written about by us. You, you find that too? <laughs> yes, I think that's true. But that paradox between making it up and imagining that you just beautifully described and how we're always trying to get out of our own way to get to ourselves is very tricky when you feel that current take you. I mean, that's a, mm. that's a beautiful distinction, making it up versus imagining. It took me about 15 years of teaching writing classes before I finally said it that way. It, it, I, 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 would, I would find now. myself saying, don't make it up. So what's a novel? What do you mean? I don't know. Because <laughs> that feels made up. I don't know what I mean. But then I finally figured it out. So I just, you know, what, what are you really seeing in that scene? Well, she's sitting there. 
then why don't you just write that she's sitting there? I don't know, it's not interesting. I said, that's the problem, you're trying to entertain me. Don't entertain me. I want to be that woman. So let's sit with her. It, this would be takes... a good time for us to sit with you. Would you read oh, to us, Oh, for goodness please? sakes. All right. Thank you. Um, I'm going to read from something brand new um, because I, I'm afraid to do just that, so I'm going to do it. So there's a weird echo up here, but is it echoing out there for you guys? It's okay? All right, good. Uh, this is the uh, first 13 minutes from uh, the title uh, novella of the book coming out in the fall. It's the longest one at about 150 pages, and it's told from two points of view. One is an 18-year-old young woman named Devon, and she's living with her widowed 81-year-old great-uncle Francis. This is in Hampton Beach, New Hampshire. It's called Dirty Love. In her head, it's angry. Most of the rapping voices, just a few years older than she is, mostly black, one white, all of them boys, though she knows they think they're men because they're known and can talk like animals and everybody loves them for it. She loves them for it, though she doesn't, not really. But there's respect there, respect for their rage. She can feel it like a small fist inside her, just barely touching another's. Then they're gone, all the motherfuckers and nines and dead boys in caskets. A woman singing now, a guitar and piano, and the woman is a face and a name on the covers of magazines Devin never reads but sees in the 7-Eleven on her walks home from work. All the store magazines have three-quarter naked women on them, all of them, even the ones about cigars or antique trucks or guns. Always a woman's cleavage and long naked legs, her arched back and ass, her fake smile and too much gloss and eyeliner that some nights makes Devin want to kick them all in the face. Sometimes she buys a Coke. It used to be a pack of merits, but no more. Not for 63 days, anyway, and not to save her lungs or skin, teeth, and hair. It's so she isn't like him in any way, her piece-of-shit father, Charlie Brandt. But anyway, she's still working, running the duster over the cooling unit under the windows, the British woman singing about running after her boyfriend, chasing him and chasing him, but he never stops or even seems to notice. The window has a gray mark on it, like whoever used this room last, threw the remote or something else hard in plastic, his cell phone maybe, or his Blackberry, or I everything, a screen with his entire life on it he can't stand anymore. Or maybe there is a fly and it was the heel of a shoe, this grayish smudge Devin has to reach up and deal with now, scratching it off with her fingernail. They're still long, but she doesn't paint them anymore. Two nights ago, her laptop on her knees in bed in the near dark, a man in Albania asked her to paint them for him, and she nexted him like pulling a trigger, but, in it, but then ended up with two drunk girls in France somewhere. They just looked at her the way girls do, like she's their competition, and they already know they don't like her and never will. Devin scrapes away most of the smudge. 
Outside, the sky is a bright gray, the August kind that can give you a sunburn when you think you're safe. And she has to squint, and now she's pissed that she has to even deal with this window, and she presses shuffle on her eye everything till she gets mad music again. A dead boy rapping about slinging and his niggas and his nine. Now everything is lined up, her mood and the music in her head, and this always makes her feel like she's moving forward, gliding down a moving sidewalk at the airport. That time she was on one, back when she was little and her mother and father seemed happy, or at least laughed a lot together. Her mother still pretty, or at least looking like she cared, big, but still sexy big, though Devin never thought about these things, just felt them, like she was lying in a soft bed surrounded by cool, deep pillows and the smell of something sweet was in the air. And that day, the three of them were getting on an airplane to Disney World where everything was more real than real could ever be. A gunshot ratchets through her head, then three more fast and one after the other. Boys are yelling and running, car wheels squealing. Then it's the low, rapping voice of a man sitting in a prison cell. All his homies are dead, and he's got nothing to do but sit in his cell and miss his little girl. Her mother, a cheating bitch, he's going to cap soon as he's out. And after a while, Devin doesn't listen anymore, just hears it. This song from a world she'll never be a part of, though she's never really felt part of her own either. This isn't a window day, but she gets glass plus from her cart in the hall and shoots where the mark has left a white shadow, and she pulls the rag from her back pocket and wipes it clean. Paula wouldn't even see that smudge, and if she did, she wouldn't fucking do anything about it. She's still on the second floor, and Devin has already done the third, and now she's in the second-to-last room on the fourth. Outside and down in the gravel lot, the waitress shacks look like those tool sheds you buy at Home Depot, but each has a little porch with railings, and Devin can see Jackie in a bikini lying on her back on her chaise lounge, her red hair fanned out around her face and shoulders. Devin wonders if she feels guilty about what happened. And she can see why the bartender wanted to fuck her, but how could Jackie have fucked him? Not just because his quiet, pregnant wife lived with him two shacks down, but because Robert Doucette was a creep. Friday and Saturday nights, Devin bussing tables with three boys. Doucette would call one of them over to get him some ice, though he had a bar back to do that. His bar would be full, tan men and women sitting and standing, drinking, eating, talking and laughing, the restaurant even busier, every table taken by families staying at the hotel or tourists staying at other hotels, sometimes couples, never anyone sitting alone, the fake jazz the manager liked blaring, the tinking of silverware on plates, low voices and high voices and obnoxious laughter. And Devin just wanted to put on her headphones and make the whole place the background of her world, just a crowded, carpeted bad dream she had to move through that smelled like perfume and shrimp scampi and sweat. But Danny Sullivan didn't allow headphones or eye everythings on the floor or her nose stud or more than one in each ear. And Devin had to work those nights with her insides never matching her outsides so there was never a sliding forward on a current you made yourself. Instead, she had to load her busing trade to bad jokes from sunburned fathers, 
dead stares from sullen kids, tired smiles from half-drunk mothers who just knew her in her life because they had been young and pretty once before, too, when Devin knew they never had. And Danny only allowed trays, never the rubber tubs from the kitchen, which would have been much easier for loading the dirty dishes and glasses. And Devin hated the polyester black pants she had to wear, the white blouse buttoned up past her bra. Sometimes, clearing a table, she'd glance over the heads and tables out to the street where cars and pickup trucks cruised slowly past, their headlights lighting up whatever car or van was in front of them. And, there, and on the other side of the boulevard was the dark beach and the black ocean, and she almost pictured herself on a ship to France or Portugal or Italy. Only she didn't. Maybe she used to. But why go there now? She went places every night. France, Spain, Turkey, Belgium, Algeria, once Moldova, wherever that was, Portugal, Luxembourg, Italy. And she was seeing only rooms, behind the head and shoulders of whatever man or woman or boy or girl she'd found was the room they sat in. Sometimes it'd be morning or afternoon and the light would be coming in, but usually it was rooms with shades pulled to day or night, very little on the walls a shelf with a TV, a few magazines, or a book. In Ireland one time, behind a drunk boy with a beard, a sword hung on the wall over a PS3 station, somebody else playing a soccer game on it behind him. There were couches with blankets thrown over them, empty wooden chairs turned facing nowhere. There were lamps on small tables cluttered with ashtrays or empty glasses or a sweatshirt balled up and hanging off one corner. In Morocco, a man stroking his penis lay sideways on a mattress, his whiskered cheek propped against his hand, and on the wall behind him hung an oriental carpet the colors of plums and blood. Usually Devon nexted right through the assholes masturbating, but this one was pulling lazily back and forth on his erection like someone would pet a cat. His shirt was off and his skinny torso was black curly hair and now she knew he could see her but nothing changed. He kept pulling on himself like he was just passing the time, waiting for her to do something or say something or write or draw on his screen anything that would get him to stop or take more of an interest. But he just stared at his screen in Africa and she stared at hers in her great uncle's guest room in Hampton, New Hampshire and they stared and stared while he did what he did and then the chat wheel began to spin again, and she was sitting in front of a man in England, her father's age. Behind him, a brightly lit room and framed photos on a wall that looked like family. He had high, thinning hair like her father and fleshy cheeks, and he was wearing reading glasses and a loosened red tie and white button-down shirt. Immediately, his typed words appeared on her screen. Hello, are you alone? Normally, she would next him like a slap in his face, but she typed, fuck you, we're all alone. Then she nexted and kept going, but she never really knew what she was looking for, if she was looking for anything, only she knew now that other parts of the world no longer interested her. What was there to find there but houses and buildings with rooms in them that held people like her? She'd seen enough and no longer needed to see more. So the money she was saving was for a car and a room of her own somewhere, a quiet zone of her own, away from everyone, 
even her kind, lonely, great-uncle Francis. And she'd be rounding the corner of the bar for the kitchen, carrying a full tray of used plates and glasses and silverware, when Robert, looking over his shoulder while pouring a drink and shooting a mixer into it from the soda gun, would shout over all the human noise, Ice, Devin. Thank you, honey. And even then, working away like he was, his eyes would drop to a side view of her ass, and she'd want to kill him. She'd push through the swinging doors into the bright kitchen, and she'd see one of the young homies in her head doing it, just walking up to Doucette with a nine and pressing it to his sweaty neck and squeezing the trigger. Devin pushes the cotton rag into her back pocket and blows once on the glass. The smudge is gone, no sign of it, no sign of Doucette anymore either. The song in her head is a happy one, dance music, a Puerto Rican girl from New York singing high over thumping bass, and because Devin's done with this room, it's a good song to keep. She runs her hand over the spread of the perfectly made mattress. She checks the bathroom one last time, the sink, toilet, bath, and mirror, the toilet roll full again, its first square folded into an inviting V so the next customer thinks no dirty fingers have ever been here before. That's what Doucette made her feel, dirty. His eyes taking her in like he'd already fucked her and wanted just one more cheap go at it again. She was 18. Didn't that stop him even a little? But she knew better than that. There were all those men around the world who perked up as soon as they saw her. There were the fathers and husbands in the bar and restaurant, their eyes taking her in like a nasty memo to themselves. There were the boys and men behind steering wheels as she walked down the street, their hungry eyes on her in the side view mirror. And there was her own father and Amanda Salvi, his 23-year-old girlfriend with her tits and flat stomach and big mouth she showed off on her fuckbook page. Devin places a going green card on the pillow, a wrapped chocolate beneath that. She steps into the hallway and locks the door behind her. Just one more room to go, then she's off till she has to come back to bus at five. She pulls her eye everything from her shorts pocket and checks the time. Three hours to do whatever she wants, except shit, it's Friday and she has a tutoring session with Francis for her GED. Not that she wants it, but Francis wants her to get it and he's letting her live with him for free so she kind of has to. Devin checks her messages, three texts from her mother, one from sick, none from her quote-unquote friends, which is how it is now, and that's fine with her. Mom, are you working tonight? Thought we'd have dinner together. Mom, did you get my text? I miss you, honey. Mom, text me, please. Sick, what's up, D? Like they're just friends and that's all they ever were. Fucking asshole. The happy dance song is all wrong now. She runs her finger over the screen till once again there are gunshots echoing through her head, the bass beating between her ears. The man's voice is her own, rapping about all the motherfuckers out there she's gonna cap, her body in cleaning cart gliding down the hallway, nothing and nobody holding her back, especially sick and her weak father and even weaker mother who still lies to herself and hasn't kicked him out of the house he took a shit in like it was a toilet and never once had been their home. Thank you.
That was wonderful. Thank you so much. So as the author, and I, I felt this way in House of Sand and Fog too, you're pulling for these characters to surmount trauma that you're visiting upon them on every page. And she's saving her money and she's studying for her GED. Um, and how did you see the world again? You know, so mm. how, what is that like to, to both cripple them and also want them to walk again? You know, that's such a great question, Mary Kay, because I, I realized early, early, early on in, in my writing that sometimes a story would just sit there and I wouldn't know why. And, and then I realized I was being too nice a guy. And, and it took me a long time to figure this out. I, I realized, you know, I don't want anyone to get hurt. I think most writers are frankly compassionate people. I, I kind of love, I've, I've met very few writers I don't immediately love. Most, because most writers really are interested in human beings. But I realized, okay, while maybe I could run to the rescue of my little sister, I cannot run to the rescue of this person in this story. And so I've, I've, it, it was a hard lesson for me, but I finally realized that there'll be no story if I don't let them just get into trouble and stay in trouble without help from me. Do you remember the story when you kneecapped them? I don't. <laughs> I just remember feeling as if um, I was sitting in the back seat of a car going fast down the highway, no one was driving, and I wasn't grabbing the wheel. It's terrifying, it's terrifying. and it feels really irresponsible <laughs> and inappropriate. <laughs> Do you identify with that at all, Edith, that whole... Did you ever rescue your people? Because you seem to put them through all kinds of shit. <laughs> I have an entirely different question for you. Um, <laughs> she ducked that one. Um, listening to you read this and listening to you read Townie and reading alone and quietly for myself, uh, House of Sand and Fog, I was struck by the enormous control of rhythm that you have. The sentences build on each other, phrase by phrase by phrase, and usually make a crescendo and come down. And I, it's, I don't know anyone else who has that kind of gripping rhythm. And I wondered how much you read aloud, your own work. A lot, yeah, a lot. I, um, I probably every, all, all through the revision process, yeah. Uh -huh. And I, I actually write with headphones from my carpentry days that I use for the table saw. And so I really have to have quiet. And I leave them on when I'm reading aloud because you can really, you can hear your voice in your head, which is really uncomfortable because it's, I always think I have a deeper, more masculine voice than I do. It's like, <laughs> who's this high voice little bastard in my head? But I do, I do. But thank you for that wonderful comment. I have no beat though, none. I might have rhythm, I have no beat. Well, my that leads me to my next question. Both of you write a lot about music, and, and characters are judging each other by what they're listening to, and oh, this is leaking out of the car, and she's going to get back to this. And Can you talk about that, writing about music, especially if you're writing in complete silence? Um, my characters are interested in music, but they are interested in other uh, arts, too. Uh, and when I have a musician as a character or a, a performance, I do a lot of research, because I myself am not particularly musical. So I listen to records and read up on things. Uh, it's kind of, um, uh, it's not natural, but I'm glad it sounds natural. Your writing is musical. You know, my first published novel, which is probably the third or fourth I'd written, um, it's called Blues Man, and one of the main characters is a blues musician, an aspiring blues harp player, and I play, I, you would think I was a good harp player if you were drunk. 
<laughs> maybe. But I, I found writing about music so challenging, you know, to, to find the words to capture this, you know, the greatest art form I think human beings have created, which is music. And I find, I find that the hardest writing I've ever had to do. And, and after Blues Man came out, I, I found myself being asked to write music reviews. And I always took them because they, they were, I was, didn't want to take them because it's so hard to describe. But I loved, uh, and, you know, there's some really good, on NPR they have some really good, there's a really good jazz critic whose name escapes me, but he writes so evocatively about jazz, which is this wonderfully free improvisatory music. But he finds the language that captures it. And um, I, think, I think I'm unconsciously bringing music in because it's, because it's a terrifying thing to try to do well. And I, I'm not saying I do it well, but I can't think of a harder thing to write about than the sound of music in the air or in your head. Have you ever written about a singer? Because I think that's even harder. No. Have you? No. It's too hard. <laughs> I'd write. rather sing than write about a singer. It surprises me to hear you say that anything is too hard. But let's go back to the question you asked Andre. When you're talking about that rhythm and, and it's building to a crescendo, um, I have asked e Edith this question before because I am astonished at a story that I completely feel that I get and enjoy and then get again the next day. So in a, in a story that Edith wrote called Girl in Blue with Brown Bag, an older gentleman and a young woman hide a stolen painting in a museum and the words that she uses that they want to slip it in like a bomb. And then the next morning the full impact of the story hit me slipped in like a bomb, and I, couldn't, I just am astonished that you could set a detonator in the fiction to go off later. And then when I read House of Sand and Fog, the action of the climax is so fast that I unspooled it later. And I wanted to hear you talk about that. Hmm. Après vous. <laughs> <laughs> I think in the story you're mentioning, um, uh, the characters probably uh, grew on you uh, like a hangover <laughs> or, or, or a morning after and um, after they had slipped in the bomb you may have realized that they had more in common than I had told you they had mischief in common and I, I think that was the I, I didn't deliberately detonate anything, but I think that was the surprise in the story. Even after in this the story, story, even this story, the flip-flop of this tale she is telling that her mother told her just before she died, and she's thinking it now, having had a stroke, and her mother was mad, and that is going to resonate. I'm going to be figuring that story out later. You know, Alfred Hitchcock has this beautiful line or this, he, ta he describes dramatic tension. He said, if I film two men having breakfast in a diner booth and they're eating their eggs slowly and sipping their coffee and one lights his cigarette and the other one looks out the window and then boom! I blow them to bits. He said, that's shock value. But if I show them slowly eating their eggs and sipping their coffee and then I show you the bag with the ticking bomb three feet away that they don't know about, then I go back to them sipping their coffee and I show you the back. What I'm getting at is, you know, you, you talked about, and thank you for the compliment, but Tufts Fog being this out of control thing. I, I, I wrote it so slowly. I don't think I wrote more than 50 words a day. 
There's a great line from Goethe, do not hurry, do not rest. The reason I write longhand is I, I prefer to write really slowly. I was actually, I, was, I had no idea the book had any dramatic tension or suspense at all. It kept being called suspense and suspenseful, and I wasn't consciously trying to make it so. I just wanted to capture the bag next to the guys eating. And I was trying really slowly to do it, and it surprised me that it, it might have some of that suspense. We are the last two writers who don't use computers, I think. You write longhand, too? No, I write on a typewriter. Oh, you're one of those. <laughs> Is it electric or uh, manual? Manual. What kind? Uh, I used to write on a Hermes until it fell apart. It was 50 years old. It had a oh. right to fall apart. Now I write on some other brand, not as good. That's what, with, a t with a ribbon and whiteout? Ribbon, ribbon. And you can get white ribbons? Whiteout, no. I just keep writing, and then I pull it out of the machine, and then I scribble all over it with your long right. hand, and then I type it all over again. Wow. That's beautiful. Well, that's sort of I, I write longhand pencil. I write longhand pencil, and then um, the, the next day, I'll, I do have a, a machine. I have three teenagers, and my daughter swears like a hip hopper. And, and she said, I said, uh, honey, can you help me with the machine? I don't know how to cut and paste on an email. What does that mean? She said, Dad, it's not a fucking machine, number one. Anyway, so I have a laptop machine, and, I, and it plays music, I noticed, after about a year of owning it. And I'll put on these headphones, and I'll just I'll listen to music while typing the previous day's longhand writing. But I won't really, I'm just putting it in. And then I turn off the music, put on the headphones from the table saw, rewrite some sentences, put it over there, and then keep writing longhand. But I really have to have blood, bone, flesh, fingernails, wood, paper. I'm just trying to enter these people. I wondered if uh, we're wandering through this mall the whole weekend, some of us, and I wondered if Louis Vuitton knew that it, the AWP was coming because I kept seeing people trying to see what kind of typewriter was in the window, that all the <laughs> pages were spewing out. No one was looking at the clothing or the valises. I wanted to know what the brand was. Um, this is a question about capturing and dramatizing empathy, which you are both uh, just amazing at. And Andre wrote that to truthfully depict a character required you to suffer with someone else. And I also love your distinction just now when you're saying to a student, sit in that chair with the character. Let's, let's sit in that chair with her. And Edith, I quoted your story about the girl discovering that non-inquisitiveness, along with just playing being there, trumps all. Can you talk about those qualities, suffering with someone and just being there? Well, just being there is my idea of the proper way to behave in life. I don't think that usually A knows what is good for B, and therefore A should not tell B what to do, but hmm. sit there and let B be. Let me be. Uh, be. <laughs> you know, I, I found myself with Joe Day talking about marriage and, and writing, and you know, I think about, you know, I've been with the same woman for 25 years, I'm happy to report, and you know, sometimes you're in deep shit in these marriages, and why do I feel 100 miles away from this woman? I love her, but who the hell is she? You know, and then I look at my own, I've finally learned in my 50s, look at my own behavior, I said, well, every night you come home, and she comes home, and you ask her questions about her day, and when I think back to what she said, all I remember is her lips were moving while I was thinking about olive oil and garlic and maybe a little Cabernet. <laughs> and I realized I wasn't listening to my wife, and, and therefore, why would she want to listen to me? And then we felt far apart from each other. So what, 
what does this have to do with, and, and then, of course, when I corrected that and say, and did she go to the hip hop class or did you take the jazz? Did you deposit that check in the right account? And once I disciplined myself to actually be in a marriage with this woman, we were closer and everything was great and, you know, one day at a time. And what the hell does this have to do with writing? I think the same is true. You talk about suffering with. For me, I, I really believe that the difference between a lot of good writing and great writing has to do with the ability with which the writer, who's simply a vessel for these people in these stories, was genuinely 100% curious about their lives. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I found that uh, my writing is always better when I really, there's that great line, I quote it too much, but Flannery O'Connor said, there is a certain grain of stupidity the writer can hardly do without. And that's the quality of having okay. to stare. And she goes on to say that writing is waiting. She doesn't mean waiting for inspiration. She means, who are you sitting at that table? Do you have to pee? Do you want an enchilada? Do you work in a dentist's office? Or did I just make that up? Maybe you don't have a job, because I don't see any car out there. And, and I'm finding, so anyway, it, it, thank you for your kind words about suffering with, but I, I'm not so much suffering with as I try to summon genuine curiosity. And here's the rub. I find that when you do, you find that all of us is in some kind of trouble at all times, and there's the suffering. <laughs> well, on that note, I think that's a wonderful place to stop. It is such a pleasure to hear you two read and talk about your craft. I want to thank all thank you. of you for thank coming. You. Thank you. And I know, I know that many of you want to continue this conversation and have them sign your books. Um, in a gathering like this, I urge you to introduce yourself to the person in front of you and the person behind you, and that will also continue our mission of bringing writers and readers together. I want to thank Penn Faulkner and AWP. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.